Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Pushkin. Welcome to part two of Rick Rubin's conversation with Neil Young on Broken Record. We just heard some of Neil's song, I Believe in You, from his 1970 masterpiece, After the Gold Rush. It's one of Rick's favorite songs on his favorite Neil album. It's a song that inspired a mystical experience for Rick that he'll try putting into words this episode. It's also one of only two songs on that album to feature Crazy Horse, the band Neil used exclusively on his newest album, Barn. Rick talks to Neil about his new album, the sessions for After the Gold Rush, and when he started organizing his massive archives. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's part two of Rick Rubin with Neil Young over Zoom. Was After the Gold Rush the first thing you recorded at home? Yeah. I recorded it in that house in Topangan. I love that one. That's maybe my, maybe my favorite. Yeah, I love that one, too. I love the fact that Barnes related to it in some weird way. Yeah. I can't put my finger on it, but it is related to it. It's a lot of the same people. Yeah. Mills is all over After the Gold Rush. There's a lot of piano playing on After the Gold Rush. Either me or Mills. That's the same thing with Barnes. It's interesting the way that worked out. Yeah. Is the song I Believe in You, 
about a particular person? That song was written probably in 1970, I'm guessing, maybe a little earlier. It was written around the time I joined CSNY, and I had written it around that time, along with birds, and I had uh, come up with this arrangement of Oh Lonesome Me, and I did all those three tracks at Sunset Sound in the morning with Crazy Horse before I would go up to Stills' house to practice with CSNY. So I recorded those then. Then after the CSNY tour and after all of that, I still had all those. And that's why they're on after the Gold Rush, because that's when I recorded after the Gold Rush. I see. Do you remember who the song was about? Was it about a person or is it abstract? I'm, I'm not really sure of the person. In a lot of cases, it's me mixed up with someone else. So some of my feelings about now that you found yourself losing your mind, are you here again? Finding the one you once thought was real is gone and changing. But then it's this other thing, now that you made yourself love me, it's like, it's a funny song, isn't it? It's a really good one. <laughs> it's, it's a personal song. A lot of guys can relate to that. Uh, yeah. Now that you made yourself love me because you can't forget all the things happened before. And it's, it's funny. I can't remember if I ever told you the story, but I had a, a near-death experience to that song. <laughs> I was driving, it was a, a full moon, and there's a time of year, I don't know the time of year, but there's a time of year when you're driving from Malibu into town when there's a very big full moon, big where it looks like it's very close. Yeah. And it's sitting right on the horizon, and it's you can't believe how big it is. It's, it's surreal. Yeah. When they're close to the horizon, they appear to be much bigger than when they get in the sky. So I'm driving on PCH, and I get onto the 10, and I'm listening I'm listening to that album, and that song comes on, and something happens. And it's funny when I say near death, because I, I don't really know how to describe it, but I have a feeling, I would call it a positive feeling. I had to pull off the side of the road because I couldn't drive. And I felt like this... I, this is not the right way to say it. The song did. The, the song affected me in a way that took me out of myself, where I relate it to dying because I was no longer here. I was gone, and it was a little scary, but it was also beautiful. It was. It wasn't bad. It was scary, but it wasn't bad. It was not negative, and um, and it's the only time it happened to me in my life. That song. That's why I ask about that song. Um, but it hit me in a very, very hard way. That's in that song. I feel it. I don't know why it is, but I, but I, I feel it too. Yeah. I can't put my finger on where it is in the song, but I think it's uh, finding that what you once thought was real is gone and changing. You know, how can I place you above me? Yeah, incredible. It just all came out so fast. It's it, that, that's why. You, that's how. Real writers, in my view, have nothing to do with what they're writing. They're vessels. You know, they just, they do, they're in the right place at the right time. They know how to be to not scare the song away. It's like you were trying to catch a rabbit, so you 
you don't hang out at the hole and look down the hole. You got to be, you know, blending in and saying, it's cool, I'm a tree. I'm, you know, I'm just part of what's going on. I'm not looking at, I'm not looking at the hole. If I see anything over there, I might take a look. Maybe I'm not, maybe I won't, whatever. It's that kind of an attitude about music, not being too serious about catching anything. The power of the song is incredible. And now even talking about it, I can feel a change in my body. Just talking about not hearing it, just discussing it. It's, there's some, there's a lot of juju in that song. (laughs) Yeah, there is. There's a version of Birds that if you listen to it, it's Danny Whitman's on that song too. That's one of the last great records that I made with Danny. So he's playing all the guitar stuff and nice little things. I remember that making that uh, quite a lot. Uh, it was one of the first songs that I used the vibes on. There's a lot of things that I did on that record that I've been doing ever since, but hadn't done before. So that was an important record to me, definitely. I'm glad you got uh, connected to it. Yeah, the song that we talked about earlier from the new album with stars in it. Welcome back. I can't say it gives me a feeling like that, but it's not the same experience at all. No. But it definitely pulls me in somewhere deep. Yeah. It's wild. I think when the stars are watching to see how you how you are, it's like the stars are watching you to see how you are. And so you feel this connection. Something cares about me. It seems to be one of the stars. So there's that little part of it. Because I, I wrote it so fast, I can't even remember how I did it. I, I, literally. Those songs happen really fast. You can tell. There's so many run-on sentences that just go on and on and on. And then they, they, the playing, the horse plays great on that song. They are so connected to the song. And in the movie, you can hear Ralph saying, that's the shit. Afterwards, that's the shit. Do you know that Neil was really doing the shit? That was our shit. That's what we do. And he was a little bit, you could tell he was just a little off, a little miffed because everybody wasn't going, what a great fucking record, Jesus Christ. You know, Ralph was going, that was the shit, you know. And I, I, even I, I, I wasn't sure if that was it or if it was the one before it or because we only played it. I think we played it once the day before and twice that day. And that was it. And I think that was the last time. Maybe the second last time. It's amazing. Just the, the feeling, the feeling in the track. And it's also interesting because it's not really like a song. Like you said, the, the, the run on sentences and. Yeah. It's more like a direct transmission of some kind. You know, it, it doesn't get, have to fit in the structure of how a song works because it's something different. Exactly, yeah. I know, it's somewhere else, that one. That's Daryl's favorite. It's mine too. She loved it since the first time she heard it. And, I, you know, uh, when it was fresh, it was everybody was going, oh, wow. What about that one? And uh, there's another one about a guy waiting on his porch for somebody to make a delivery. And that's got the, some, some ambience, but it doesn't have the, the same depth. But it, it's just a very casual ambience that, ha- that is similar to that ambience. And I, I, being geographically oriented myself to the music and where it is and when it is, I feel that the barn has more of that in it. Yeah. So I'm going to go probably back to the barn. 
Yeah. I've written some more songs that I'm working on. And strangely enough, I'd written one song, the first song that I wrote uh, that would have gone on Barn. I forgot. (laughs) I didn't even do it. (laughs) So I'm going to do that on the next one. And probably, you know, just because it's, it was an honest forget. It wasn't like I waited for anything. So I might still be good. It might be fine. It's fresh. It's never been fun. I've never played it with anybody, but I know what it is. It's it's called Break the Chain. Do, do, do the songs, from the time you write them and then you record them, how much do they change in that, from the from the thing that comes in to the thing that happens in the recording that we get to hear? Nothing changes except during the performance. During the performance, if we hit the right whatever it is, the mantra, the note, the the rhythm, whatever you want to call it, the ambience. If we hit that vibe in the right place, it opens up the window and changes start flooding in. Improvisations start flooding in and they all fit like a glove and everything's cool. And as long as, uh, uh, as long as I don't think poison, think thinking is you're thinking you're stinking. Somebody said that. (laughs) Well, there's no thinking. So if that happens again, we'll get we'll get something. And I had another song that I so I have that one and, and another one that I uh, that I've written that is probably gonna be one of these, you know, if I if I end up doing it, uh, I hope I do. It's almost like poison to talk about it. Yeah. Because it's not done. I mean it's not played, it's written, but I won't touch it or look at it. Yeah. Until I'm playing it with crazy voice. So it'll be preserved. Yeah. It may uh, develop uh, into something when I play it with the horse. We'll be right back with more from Neil Young after a quick break. We're back with Rick Rubin and Neil Young. When did you start recording around the full moon? Mine would probably happen about uh, early 70s. Was it based on something you heard or something that you felt or what started it? One day I felt like I just played some music and I felt great and everything was good. And it was really good. I remember feeling good that morning, feeling good about everything, wanting to play more music, just being into it and feeling like it's going to be good. Then we played it and it was great. Everything was good. And then a while later, I got that feeling again. It happened, you know, a month or so later, maybe a couple of months, and I felt it again. I said, geez, I want to get back in the studio, play with, play with somebody again, play with the horse or whatever. And then I started wondering why. And then I started realizing that I had a chronological record of my work. And I said, well, why don't I just go back and see if there's any correlation between the ones that have got this feeling and the ones that... Uh, you know, in the time of day or the time of month. And that's when I realized that there's a, a window of opportunity that opens somewhere in the two-week period, perhaps the 10-day period before a full moon. It sort of starts coming and you can feel it. And if you're open to it, you can feel it. If you're not, if you're judging and trying to decide, well, is this it or not? Or I'm looking for proof. I mean, forget it. So I was trying to be open to that. I looked at my records of what I had, which were pretty primitive at the time, none things were recorded. 
And then later again, and again, and again through the years, I looked, kept looking, and I kept Not that it's concisely perfect, but it seems that there's always something going on in the sky. Uh, and there's also the, the new moon when there's no moon. It's just a sliver. You start seeing it. Something happens. You feel a change in your attitude. And then I said, well, that's got to have something to do with something. So I started, you know, looking at it that way. And then, you know, I'm mostly just guessing, but I'm saying, I think that the full moon has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, there's a song called Human Race on, uh, on Barnes. Um, that's about the fires and floods, the children of the fires and floods. It's about all of the about what's going on and why can't we come together and stop it? Why can't we all come together and deal with this thing that's happening to us? The solo on that song was particularly fiery, I remember. That was probably for me the best solo on the album on that song. Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right. Now that was done three hours after the full moon. Yeah. The song was written in the out in the one or two hours before the full moon. The full moon was at eleven o'clock, eleven thirty that morning. Yeah. So as I was walking to the studio, which I do every day across a big open field, it's about a two-mile walk. I had a piece of paper and a pencil like I usually carry. And I had this just come up with a couple of changes and it was pretty good. And then and I might have something on those or they're just some changes that you got to do if you said the horse. I didn't think much about it. And then I wrote all the words on the way there. And we only played that song once. There's like three or four songs on this record that only have been played once. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a different approach. I try to find that moment, and I don't really care about everything else. Therefore, there's lots of unfinished records and lots of things that I just put down, made a rough, kept on moving. Had other things to do. Yeah. Now I'm finding them. Amazing. Would you say your relationship to those songs has changed over time? Or when you listen to them, is it like, does it bring you back to where you were? Or tell me what happens. Tell me what it's like to hear something you haven't heard in 40 years that you that you recorded. Well, I know if I listen to uh, I Believe in You, it's going to feel just like it did the day I did it. Yeah. So songs like that, records that have got that thing, whatever it is, they never lose it. They have it right for it. You don't get tired of it. I mean, if you did nothing but listen to that song, you might get tired. But come back to it. Your first breath of it is great. Yeah. It feels like it always did. To me, it does. And I get that feeling in my body, and I know, okay, there it is. It's, it's interesting. And some people, you try to explain that to them, and I think you're crazy. You know, we start on Monday and we stop on Friday. I mean, you know. You don't waste any time during the week. <laughs> it's just, I go, okay, fine. In the Fire and Flood song, it has uh, it feels like biblical imagery. Did you grow up in the church? Was that was it intentional to be biblical? No, but I think what happened is when we put those vocals on it, I, I sang the song live, and then we put the today's people and uh, children of the fires and floods. That's definitely got a church vibe to it, yeah. but choir singing. And it's, you know, Billy's voice and Ralph's voice, Moses' voice singing. And you talk about a savior, you talk about a savior. And like, th- there's a lot of words that are 
definitely feel like they come from a biblical place. It's interesting. It happened so fast. I, I have no, I don't know. Yeah. Because I was writing it while I was walking and I never even bothered. I never wasn't singing it. I was just writing it down and then I put it back in my pocket. I couldn't think of anything. I didn't try to. I just put it away. Yeah. And then when I waited, something else came along. I started writing it. I never, I always just try to catch what comes and not try to make anything up. Yeah. There's another one that I really love on the new album is, uh, again, I don't know the title, but it's it's a complicated thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a complicated thing. Tumbling through the years. Yeah. Yeah. Tumbling through the years without your love. It's like a, it's like a thought of what it would be like to, what it's like to have a great, you know, partner that helps you and loves you and supports you and understands you and, and is there for you and that you can be part of her life and, and understand her and put it back and get it back in the same way and try to and you do that. And it's about that kind of feeling. It's, it's uh, you know, coming through the years without your life. It's, a, it's, it's imagining what it would be like, but not even imagining, just going, no, let's not do that coming through the years without your love. I'd rather be with your love coming through the years. So that's it's just a thing about how lucky I feel and how good it is, but also how scary it is that it could be not there because I've been in, in both places. That one, songwriting-wise, is different in that it feels more like a traditional, it almost sounds like a 60s pop song. Yeah. It's not presented that way, but songwriting-wise, it feels very traditional and beautiful. Well, thanks. The other one that's like that is uh, Don't Forget Love. Yeah. Okay, that's like the C, A minor, F, G, seventh, over and over again. Classic. For the it's just like, What? Yeah, but I couldn't stop playing. And I, and in that song took me a couple of months. I'm going, this is so jive. This song is, I cannot, I'm going away. And I come by the piano again and I start playing it. Wow, I love these changes. I know they're not new, but I love them. And it doesn't matter that they're not new because I'm not new either. Yes. <laughs> it's okay. Yes. And I started just uh, writing words and they came, they came slowly, but I didn't work out of my... I, my house is set up in such a way that I have to cr- go by the piano a lot to get from A to B. So on my way from A to B or B to A, I can stop at the piano and just tinkle a little bit. You never know. <laughs> you never know. You you have a song on the new album where you proclaim you proclaim your American status. It's it feels like a proudly American song. And even in the context of the song you mentioned that you came from Canada, but you're an American. Yeah. And um what was your view when you lived in Canada, what was your view of America? It was a long way away. I I, I was uh I was up in Canada and uh well, I heard about America and I saw some great music it came from down there. Uh and then when I started playing my music and going to high school and playing in my band and doing this and then I decided to stop going to school and just play music and i went off to towards toronto uh town by town getting to toronto and uh, i met a couple of americans in bands playing with clubs along the way so i uh became enamored of going down there to see what it was all about myself and then i ended up recording for motown for a while you know that was an adventure with ricky james 
that was fun. Too bad that didn't work out. That was going to be really good. Uh, but that's when they caught Rick for draft dodging and uh, put him in jail or did something with him and screwed up our whole thing. So as soon as he got arrested, then the Motown deal went away and you were... Motown, they didn't want us without him. And uh, for good reason. He was the lead singer and he was a lot of the band. But I went, we went, Bruce Palmer and I went back to Toronto and uh, sold all of our equipment and bought this hearse and got ready to travel to Los Angeles to start over again. We thought we'd just turn the page and see what happened. So we got to... We sold all the stuff, which didn't belong to us. So we, we sold the stuff that this investor had bought for the band, all the equipment. And uh, we sold all, our, all of that, bought the hearse, and left town. <laughs> we're, we're good boys. But uh, <laughs> you know, we were following ourselves. Uh, following. He wasn't missing any money. Maybe somebody, somebody did that to me today. It wouldn't be a killer. So uh, it wouldn't matter that much to me. But uh, it wasn't a nice thing to do, but we did. Then we were headed for L.A. Before that, I'd been to New York and did a demo at Electra and saw in New York. I remember, you know, trying to carry my twin reverb down to the bus station from, from the village. It was a long way. And I just didn't have any money. So we got there. But that, that was my previous New York City experience. And then I, when I got to L.A., I really liked it. We arrived in April Fool's Day, 1966. <laughs> and nothing's changed since. <laughs> nothing's changed, no. We're still on the same road. So when did you realize you were enamored with America? You came down here, you started a band with stills. When did you start feeling like I'm an American? When did that happen? Well, I, it was obvious that I, I was a, being American. I was paying taxes I was playing all over America for Americans. And, uh, you know, the one thing about me was I was a Canadian. So when I came up with the song, I came up with that thing where I said, I'm a Canaric. It's a different thing. It's, that's what I, the only way I could describe myself at that point. Uh, so it, it, it all worked out. I and mean, it's, it's, it's cool. Now I, now I am a Canaric. I got my, I got my uh, piece of paper and I had to take the test twice. I answered all the questions the first time, and they realized after that that they should have taken the test and really kept track of what I was saying. <laughs> so they brought me back in for the test again. Wow. After I passed it, and they asked me all the same questions, to which I kept saying, well, you know, I answered this question. Consult your records. Yeah. See what I said. But they didn't have a, a witness that signed they didn't have the one thing they needed to put me away because I had said things about weed. So they asked me if I ever smoked weed. And I said, yeah, I smoked weed. I've been smoking weed for a long time. I use it to write songs. And it helps me at times, not always. Yeah. But I enjoy it. It removes me from reality sometimes in a way that I enjoy. So I said that in the first interview. Yeah. They wanted me to say that again. I said, well, I can't, I can't do that. I already answered the question. And you're asking me all the same questions. But there were many more people in the room. Yeah, yeah. And they were taking notes and recording and doing all this stuff. Fishy. There was something wrong with it. And I think, you know, this was in the uh, previous administration's era. And uh, so I, 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 re I realized that I, uh, 
was being trapped. They were trying to trap me. And my and my attorney said, you got to watch out because they're trying to get you to say everything that you already said. Yeah. So if you say it now, you're liable for it. But before they accepted it. So you just got to leave it where it was. That was very interesting. In the song you say, uh, you see changes coming to this country. Do you view this as an optimistic song or a pessimistic song? Well, I think it's an observance. Uh, it's not so much optimistic. Or, I don't think change is bad. Yeah. I think change is coming to this country. What could be happening here in this country could ultimately end up being the best thing that ever happened to America, where we discover that it matters who we are, that it matters that we have beliefs, that matters that we have a code of right and wrong and what's true and what isn't true and that truth matters. All these things that, you know, that you think is part of being an American is, is to be forthright and strong in your convictions and what it is and say what you mean and stand behind it and stand behind your brother and, you know, uh, you know, stand beside people who you think need help. Uh, they may be fellow Americans in trouble. You could stand right there with them. And that's what that song, that's what the feeling is in that song. I think it could be a good thing, but it, like a lot of good things, it doesn't feel really good at first. And this definitely qualifies for that. So we've got a lot on our plate. We have, obviously, we have climate change, which is number one, which we ignore. And number two is the pandemic, which we ignore as much as we can. We're trying to convince ourselves that we beat it. Now we can go back to regular life, which is not true. That's, an, that's a lie. That's not true. We used to have a leader that told us everything was okay. And maybe he thought it was nice to be comforting, and that's kind of where he was coming from. And that's the most gracious thing that I could say about that. But I, I do think that, uh, you know, we're on the, on the edge of, 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 of really discovering who we are. We, we need strong leadership, and we need, uh, we need help from each other. We'll be back with more from Neil Young after a quick break. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Neil Young. Tell me about protest songs. You've over the course of your life, you've written a lot of protest songs. Tell me how you feel protest songs work in the world. Tell me the effect of a protest song or what you imagine it is. Well, it's it's reporting. It's talking about what's going on. Like uh, Ohio is like Ohio is just basically a description of something that happened. And the feelings of, of young people about it happening, you know, talking about soldiers cutting us down. It's just that there hadn't been protest songs like that on the radio at that time. And now if you write a protest song like that, the radio's gone. The, there's nobody who has the balls to stand up and play the song. They don't want, they got it programmers. They got people who decide what they play. They, there's a lot of people who would like to play what they want to play, but the way things are set up, it doesn't matter. There's really uh, no uh, place for them to play it. There's no radio to speak of anymore that we all pay attention to. The great thing about the, those days was everybody listened to the radio, so everybody heard the same thing. So if you get a message out there, it got to a lot of people. Yeah, And that no longer happens. So protest songs now are like fodder for media. Media gets to comment on the protest song and everybody uh, 
it becomes everybody's thing. You have a blog about what it means, you know, put down the person who wrote it, whatever it is. The day of the protest song as a active way of changing things is probably passed. It's it's funny you 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 talk about the media reaction because one of the craziest things I've ever seen on television in my life was you put out an album. I think it was called "Impeach the President" or what, what was it called? Living with War. Living with War. And is there a song "Impeach" about impeaching the president? Let's impeach the president. Let's impeach the president. Okay. You were interviewed. I don't know if you remember this, but this was one of the more surreal things I've seen in my life. You are Neil Young. You were interviewed on CNN. I think it was maybe outside of Warner Brothers Records. And the and the CNN interview, it was a short interview. It was, you know, it was a minute long. Yeah. It was a young woman who clearly had no idea of who you were. And the CNN interview interviewer said, I remember she said to you, well, you have this song about impeaching the president. And um, a lot of people are saying it's really just like a publicity stunt. And this is on the news. And I'm thinking, (laughs) I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is where we are, that someone from the news is asking Neil Young at this point in his career, this was not that long ago, (laughs) if he was doing a publicity stunt to get popular by talking about impeaching the president. It It was surreal. It was, but it just showed how much the times had changed. You know, and uh, and the media has a great effect on things, and the media is not brilliant. The media is another machine. It's another. There's another CEO. There's another leader calling the shots for every station, and the media is like, I believe, the most dangerous weapon confronting America. I don't think the media is a big help. When I see some of these uh, stations. Either Fox or MSNBC, or not so much. Sometimes CNN, some of the people on CNN, but they they present stories in a way that to try to take a side and and kind of and then they have these little persnickety things they say, these little jokes about this is real stuff, and this is our source of in, of information, and these people are toying with it like it's entertainment. They can't tell the difference between their own notoriety and the meaningfulness of the news. They don't have the respect for the news. They have, they're looking to present their image. We don't want to harp on that forever, so let's talk about something much more. Makes, it makes us feel bad. Yes, let's talk about you something. Feel a little bit sick. Let's move on, Rick. Yes, let's talk about something much more important. Yeah. Do you still have the cigar store Indian that used to be on stage with you sometimes? Yes. Does he have a name? Woody. Woody. Beautiful. Yeah. Where's Woody these days? Where does he live these days? I believe Woody's in Oxnard. It's a nice place. I bet he likes Oxnard. He probably likes it a lot. He's with my band equipment and stuff, which he likes to be with. Yeah, I bet. That's where he feels good. You know, and and Woody is an unfortunate victim of uh, the uh, changing times and Woody is a wooden Indian, okay? A wooden Indian with some cigars. But back in the day, Indian tobacco was great. That's what all those tobacco stores used to be proud to sell this tobacco that they got from Indians. So having the 
chief out there with some cigars kind of said something good. But in today's world, I read about people saying, well, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself for using the name Crazy Horse. And you got to get rid of that wooden Indian. That was a disgrace. And I, you know, I, I try to tell Woody about that. He doesn't believe it. And I, we played one casino that was owned by uh, Native Americans, and they were offended by Woody. Were they really? Yeah, they were offended by Woody. And I said, well, that's fine. But Woody has to stay and listen. But we'll just cover Woody up so nobody knows he's here. So we put a blanket over Woody, a beautiful Indian blanket over Woody. <laughs> He was feeling okay, and everything was fine, and we did our show, and we went to the next show. But I realize everybody's sensitive today about things, but to be sensitive about things like that, uh, when there's so many other things to really focus on that are really meaningful. Yes. Is there a story behind the little lit-up love, love sign that you have on the stage? Daryl loves that sign. I got it from somewhere. She may have gotten it in a in a junk store somewhere, because uh, we always visit these places where we can pick up old stuff along the highway. And uh, so she may have gotten it there. I don't know where we got it, but it's always there now. It's on stage all the time. I love it. I do, too. She does, too. She, it, it arrived with her, and, and uh, it'll be here forever. Earlier, you talked about the process of becoming an American. Do you remember... And you revealed in, in the first interview that you smoked pot on occasion. Do you remember the first time you ever smoked pot? Yeah, I think I smoked pot in uh, Yorkville Village in Toronto, uh, probably in 1965. And do you remember if it had any connection to music with you right away? No, it didn't. There was a bunch of people sitting around in a room under a cafe called The Riverboat. Or next door to the cafe called the Riverboat, which is a music place back in the sixties in Yorkville, which was like Greenwich Village in Canada. You know, David Ray was a guitar player. He used to play with uh, a lot of great players. He played with Ian and Sylvia. Played with uh, played with a lot of great players. And uh, you know, a company guitar player accompanies David Ray, acoustic guitar player. And he had some leads, so I tried it. I've never tried it. Sitting around with six or seven people. When's the first time you noticed how it affected music? First time I, I smoked some and played with a band. That's the, that, then it became real obvious. At the time that that happened, that wave of people discovering marijuana and music, was everybody doing it? Was it like a, a known piece of the puzzle or a doorway? It was kind of the underground of music. There was that underground. Not everybody did it, but a lot of people in the underground did. Yes, and clubs. I was just trying, you couldn't, it wasn't like so prevalent that you could walk in a club and smell it. It wasn't like that yet. You could smell it on the street, but not somewhere where you're in a close space with other people. Earlier you mentioned um, the rust, how, how the guitar rig changed right before rust. How did, how did it work out for you to film the rust tour? Uh, well, Larry Johnson, uh, my good bro, uh, and David Myers, who's the director of photography, um, and a guy named Fred Underhill, who's a producer. Uh, you know, we just started thinking about filming it because it was a concept as a concert. It had a story as a concert. It was an ambience, 
place. And, and uh, so we wanted, we decided to try to make a film. I, mean, I was hanging out with Larry all the time. We just made what we had made already a few years back before that movie in 71, 72. We made Journey Through the Past, which is my first film. I, I'm really not a filmmaker, you know. I make movies mostly for fun. I like to do it for fun. It's fun to do. It's great to create these things and create these scenes and everything. And, you know, I can't really, I'm not, uh, I can't compete with all of the movie makers because that's not what it, this is. I'm not doing that. It's about music and film and fantasy. You know, it's different. That's what I like to do. Cool. I'm, I'm excited to see all of the, the eight films that you talked about finding uh, through the archive project. That'll be great to see. Yeah, they're going to be fun. That's a good, that's a, that's a good ride. There's, I think there's eight, maybe nine, but I think there's eight. This is why this set is, you know, the film start in the, in the set, uh, in the volume three, there's a, a lot of evolution of ideas. Plus uh, some audio, documentary audio, which I've done, uh, I've got one, one disc, is uh, Linda Ronstadt and Nicolette Larson and me sitting around a table with David Briggs and I'm playing every song that I've just written for them, and they're starting to sing the parts while I'm playing for the first time. So there's like 10 or 12 songs, you know, Long May Run and those kind of songs from that era, and uh, they're all singing and giggling and laughing. It's more like a, you know, like it's, it's a docu-musical. Docu yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think people need more of the real thing behind the music. Yeah. And I can put out all my records, but I've already put all my records out. I'll put the backstory of the records out a little bit or things you might have missed or things that got left behind on the search for perfection. Boarding sounds. It's quite often the original things that happen when you look back and you go, wow, why did we go by that? Why didn't we just stay right there and go home? You know, so I've discovered a lot of things like that in the archive. There's, there's like 900 songs in there. Or Whatever it is, I can't wait to hear the whole. <laughs> can't wait well, to hear them all. You're gonna have to sit back and you know, sit back and relax because the whole thing would probably take a day to listen to. Beautiful. It's rip. Cool, man. Well, it's a pleasure speaking to you as always. You too. I miss you and I love you. Likewise, my friend. And I look forward to seeing you in person, giving you a big hug sooner than later. Yeah, me too. And maybe we can get together and listen to our hard luck stories. Oh my God. I haven't heard it since then. So I'm I'm gonna and I'm gonna wait to listen until we listen together. I want to listen to it with you. Okay, that'll be great. It's gonna be fun. Hard luck stories, modern world. We live in a modern world. Oh yeah. A neat song. Yeah. And uh, horseshoe man. They were great. If we if it hadn't been for me cutting my finger or whatever that happened, <laughs> we probably would have had a record right there, an album that everybody would know now. It's all good. It's all good. Whatever we we trust the universe's order of events, it's all good. Exactly. Exactly. We do. Cool, man. All right. Speak to you soon. Love to Daryl. Thanks, man. Be well. Thanks to Neil Young for spending so much time with us talking about his creative process and about the new material he's getting ready to release in the new year. You can hear all of our favorite Neil Young songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. 
Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.